0: Business
1: Well, depending on what culture you're from, 18 is a very lucky number indeed. We have a particularly good treat for you tonight, an extended interview with the prime whistleblower at the Zondo Commission, Mr. Temba Maseko. It is Tuesday, the 18th of January. I'm Alec Hogg. Also with me in studio tonight is Michael Apple here in Johannesburg and then in our virtual studio coming to us from the Mother City, Justin Rowe Roberts and Nadia Swatch. Well, Michael, that's quite a scoop. Uh, the interview that you did today with uh, Temba Maseku. Uh, Tell us a little bit of background on who he is and why we should be waiting with, well, not bated breath, but anticipation for the second half of the show, which is dedicated to him.
2: Alec, there are 600 million reasons why he is an important man. Uh, He was the chief executive at Government Communications, the purse holder of the entire government advertising spend that the Guptas wanted to get their hands on, 600 million rand. He said no. Three months later, he's tossed out into political wilderness. He can't get a job in the public sector. He can't get a job in the private sector. A very clear case study of what happens to whistleblowers, unfortunately, in South Africa. No no financial support, no mental health support. Tossed out completely, uh, isolated from his comrades, and everything that goes along with being a whistleblower, including a recent criminal break-in at his house and what he had to do and his thoughts on that. So do not miss a fascinating interview with uh, somebody in South Africa I definitely owes a debt of gratitude to There have
1: been so many though of these incredibly courageous human beings who have stood up and been counted and not been supported. So I'm looking forward to that. But before we Uh, I'm sure there are many people who are thinking, but hang on, I saw this on social media that he had two guys on his roof and he was shooting at them over the weekend. Do you cover that in your discussion?
2: Yes, yes, I do.
1: All right, so you can uh, only find out from From the horse's mouth a little bit later in the program. I had a discussion with Dave Willem, who is also a whistleblower, but more of a corporate style. He's a chartered accountant. He was the financial director of African Bank when it still was a legitimate organization. Not to say that it isn't today, but it went through quite a lot of of bumps to get there. And he's been a whistleblower, Justin Roberts. You know all about this story on Tonga Tongart, uh, once KwaZulu-Natal's biggest industrial company, Uh, you've been talking to a few people on the Tongart story as well, and today was an extraordinary general meeting, which Dave gave us his view of. Uh, What has your feedback been on it?
3: The Tongart situation is a very interesting one. Once a darling of the JSC, a 10 billion rand plus company, Alec, that has gone to almost nothing. They um, are valued at just around 700 million they're undergoing a 4 billion rand rights issue, of which um, there's an underwriter for 2 billion rand that is likely to take control of the company. There isn't a lot of information on this underwriter, which is led by the Rudland family. We don't know much about them. We don't know how they made their wealth. And there's just a lot of question marks. So there's a lot of uncertainty amongst the Tongaat shareholders. And uh, today's extraordinary general meeting went through and... We don't know what's going to happen from here.
1: Well, the company got what it wanted, and uh, even more so. Gavin Hudson, who's been quite open in his communications with us today, said he will not talk to us. He's not doing any interviews, any broadcasts, uh, any discussions. That's it, as far as Tonga concerned. There are thousands of Tonga shareholders who are still licking their wounds and likely to have even bigger wounds into the future. They've lost about 90%. 5%, 98% of their capital from the peak. And now we hear that Tongard is going to sue Deloitte. I've asked David Woolerman, we'll get that information a little bit later, uh, exactly how much money is involved in it. If you recall, Justin, Deloitte settled with, uh, with Steinhoff for 1.3 billion rand. Uh, a nice billion rand would certainly go a long way to helping the Tongard cause.
3: Exactly, Alec. I think the main issue with this is that there are a lot of retail shareholders that have an interest in Tongart. If you hold around 1,000 rands worth of Tongart shares, this rights issue is so big and so dilutive that you'll have to place between 6,000 and 7,000 rands, six to seven times the value of your current shareholding, in order to keep your pro rata shareholding. Otherwise, you'll be diluted by 90% or more.
1: Rough stuff. Uh, More of that coming up in just a moment. BrightRock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. And that's the cue for our colleague Nadia Swat to bring us up to date with today's news headlines. Nadia?
4: Jacob Zuma has launched yet another legal challenge against the State Capture Commission attacking Acting Chief Justice Raymond Zondo's appointment. Zuma argues that Zondo's conduct against him, after he tried to have the Commission head recuse himself, demonstrated bias against the former President. This includes the Commission's application to the Constitutional Court to hold Zuma in contempt, which ultimately led to his arrest. The State Capture Commission first report places Zuma's front and centre in state capture, finding he was an active participant in the events that led to many of South Africa's institutions falling into the hands of the Gupta family. The multi-party coalition governing the city of Johannesburg has decried the behaviour of ANC and EFF councillors in the municipality after they collapsed council and brawled, resulting in injuries. All other parties in the council have blamed the two parties for the chaos and called on their national leaders, including ANC President Cyril Ramaphosa to bring their members in line. The ANC caucus leader accused the council of bullying the party and dismissing its concerns around voting procedures. The coalition has accused the ANC of being unwilling to give up power and warned that this was a sign of things to come after the national election in 2024. Facing backlash for its involvement in the erosion of the South African Revenue Service under state capture, US based management consultancy firm Bain has withdrawn its membership from Business Leadership South Africa. Bain, one of the leading global consultancy firms, has been implicated in part one of the state capture report, which found that it, along with former SARS Commissioner Tom Moyane and former President Jacob Zuma, was central to the attempt to destroy the tax agency. Giving no reasons for its sudden withdrawal of its BLSA membership, Bain has denied the findings of the state capture report saying that though it had made mistakes in its work with SARS, it did not willfully support state capture at the Revenue Service or elsewhere. Justin, back to you for the market report. The JSUEL share Index was lower
3: at 74,900. In the currency markets, the rand was weaker against all the major currencies to 15 rand 42 cents to the dollar, 20 rand 20, 95 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 54 cents to the euro. Gold is lower at $1,809 an ounce. A rand will cost you approximately 29,500 Rand. crude is up, trading at $87.10 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency Bitcoin will put you back 640,000 Rand.
1: This daily market report was made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes.
5: Today is Tuesday, January 18th, and this is your FT News Briefing. UK inflation numbers are out this week. China is changing the way it lends to Africa. And the FT's Hannah Murphy has been looking into Facebook's plans for its metaverse. The company's patent application suggests it might go after a lot more data data that that perhaps it's never collected before, and that might be
6: your eye movements, your pupil movements, if your nose wrinkles, if you scrunch your forehead.
5: I'm Joanna Gao, in for Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. Inflation in the UK is expected to rise to a 30-year high. Tomorrow, we'll see data from December, and a Reuters poll is forecasting inflation at 5.2%. Economists point to higher energy costs, stronger demand for most goods and services, and continued supply chain disruption. Now, bearing in mind that economic forecasts are especially uncertain during the pandemic, most experts predict inflation will peak in April. That's prompting expectations that the Bank of England will increase its key interest rate several times this year. We've been hearing a lot about Facebook's plans to build a metaverse. The company even renamed itself Meta. But how exactly is it going to make money from this avatar-filled virtual universe? The FT's Hannah Murphy searched for clues in a number of patent applications that Meta's filed. She said many of them were for technologies aimed at collecting data they've never collected before. And that might be your eye movements, your pupil movements, if your nose wrinkles, if you scrunch
6: your forehead in order to power its uh, metaverse. And that's in two ways. One way might be used to sort of guide where you're moving around in the metaverse, if it tracks your eyes, for example. Another is to ensure that your avatar mirrors realistically what you're doing. So that's sort of one camp of patents. And then the second camp looks a little closer at what its business model might look like. And we're seeing uh, signs from those patents that it's going to look at advertising and personalized advertising, very similar to the model that we see currently. So, Hannah, were there any other patents that jumped out at you? So one patent in particular that struck me that talked about having a, a kind of blueprint for a virtual reality store, and in that virtual store you 're able to kind of go in an advertiser so say uh, at Nike, for example, might sponsor a virtual object uh, say a shoe uh, you go in, you see that shoe, you can interact with it in some way, and then either you you buy that shoe and, and you get an actual real physical shoe in real life delivered to you or the idea is that you have a sort of digital twin living in this world permanently, you might just be buying a virtual shoe that your virtual avatar then wears. And Facebook or Meta gives the possibility of either, that you can either buy a digital good or a real good, and it's the advertiser that sponsors that in a virtual
5: store. I bet there are some consumer privacy experts who are raising some red flags. What are some of their concerns? it's very likely that facebook
6: is going to collect a lot of data that it hasn't before and obviously there's concerns about how is that data protected where is it stored sort of will that that data then be fed into this personalized advertising system that we just spoke about obviously there's concerns about whether people are sort of aware of that and to what extent they can consent to it. And currently, it's a bit of an open field. There's just no legislation in this space. And so privacy experts are are concerned and asking
5: about that. Hannah Murphy is the FT's tech correspondent. Africa has come to rely on China for much of its financing. Chinese state lenders have become Africa's biggest source of development finance. But they've become nervous about possible defaults. The IMF lists many countries on the continent as being at high risk of debt distress. So Beijing has been adjusting its approach to lending. The FT's Catherine Hilla told us about one Chinese loan worth $200 million to expand an airport in Uganda.
0: We noticed that Ugandan lawmakers and also some government officials in the Civil Aviation Authority of Uganda got really worked up about the conditions of a loan that apparently when it was signed about six years ago or almost seven
5: years ago, people were not really aware of the fine print. The dispute made headlines. One newspaper suggested that China could seize the airport. And there were accusations that the loan could undermine Uganda's sovereignty. But Catherine didn't find anything predatory about the loan. She says the details reveal more about how China's changed the way it historically lent to African countries. They started from resource-rich countries
0: where they could back loans with collateral in the form of future resources exports or future resource export revenue. And so as they uh, expanded into financing infrastructure construction in other African countries that were not so resource-rich, they would also try to back up some of these loans with a certain kind of security, like other revenues, maybe not from resource exports, but like the evolving revenues from the airport that is being modernized. It seems to be a result of a learning process by Chinese state banks in Africa. And part of the reason is that they have been active in some of the riskier markets. So they ended up writing some clauses into these loans that are typically historically
5: used by international commercial banks in project finance. And if it's any indication, China's President Xi Jinping said recently that Beijing would cut the amount of money it supplies to Africa by a third. And it would also change the way it provides financing to the continent. And it is gradually shifting
0: from a major focus on lending and it is shifting more to investment, for example. So what we are likely to see going forward is maybe a larger number of corporation projects with smaller project size. And we may see more projects that are focused on energy security and, and energy sustainability. And more projects that are focused on new kinds of energy sources. And also there's going to be a larger focus on training African human resources and that kind of thing. So maybe we'll see less of a focus on loans and more on investment. And we'll see less of a focus on infrastructure and more on
5: human capital. Catherine Hilla is the FT's Greater China Correspondent. Before we go, Scotland is going big on wind power. Its government has awarded 25 gigawatts of offshore wind project development rights to companies including BP and Shell. That's more than double the UK's existing offshore wind capacity. More than half of these Scotland projects will use a new technology called floating wind turbines. Usually, offshore wind farms use turbines that are fixed to the seabed. But the new technology allows for projects to be built further out at sea, at greater depths, where wind speeds are higher. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news.
1: David Willem, whistleblower at Tongard, chartered accountant and, uh, well, someone who's been uh, waving flags recently with a big deal that Tonga is trying to do with a Zimbabwean company to rescue the business. There was an extraordinary general meeting today. David, you waved your flags ahead of this meeting. Uh, maybe just to unpack very briefly, for those who haven't been close to the story, uh, in a nutshell, why was it that you didn't want the meeting to go ahead?
7: So I certainly recognize, and in, in our previous interviews spoke about the the deep trouble that the company is in. You know, there's no uh, denying that. But we, we feel that there have been many opportunities to uh, address some of these issues, including recovering damages from those that failed in their duty, their duty of care or their professional responsibility, uh, possibly getting a better deal from the banks so that they could um, have some time to fix the company but, and, and a number of other options that were offered and explored. But they've kind of taken this very, very dramatic step of, of a big capital raise. They're raising five or six times the existing market cap of the company. And bringing in this really unknown outsider uh, uh, Zimbabwean company, which we know very little about. We know something about the principles behind the company who are effectively going to get to take control of this company at what will be a very depressed price issue price. They haven't said yet exactly the price, but I, I expect it will be around 2.75, 2, 3.00. That's, that's my guess. We'll see in time. But that would mean that existing shareholders get diluted by another 90%. Bear in mind, they've already lost ninety-five percent of what they had. You know, we now down to practically fractions, and that's just a tragedy. I think for long-suffering shareholders who stayed with the company through the last few years of of turmoil.
1: Tonga did respond to your concerns on business news this morning saying that the company's in a lot of trouble they've done their due diligence on the Zimbabwean operation that's going to acquire control they really need the money it's going to take too long to sue Deloitte or to get anything back from Deloitte has that changed your view in any way?
7: Uh, No I don't think so because I think those comments and those discussions we had with them they've said before I I accept fully that the company must, you know, uh, it must take action that will ensure its survival. But I think it's also important that all stakeholders are are treated in a balanced and fair way in that process. I asked a question several times and I asked it again in the meeting today. Who exactly is Magister? Who are they? What investments do they hold? And I'd only managed to establish that they had a, a small investment in a company called Terra, but I might be wrong. And so I asked them, have you done a due diligence on the balance sheet of this company? Do you know what investments they are in and where the source of their funding comes from? And I just don't get an answer to that. And it seems not an unreasonable question. If there was a, a large company about to take over, uh, sa corporate, listed corporate I don't think it would be unreasonable to expect that the, the the company taking over that company would would show its credentials in more than a very disguised and oblique way.
1: So why is it being so disguised? The Magister structure and and ownership.
7: Alec, I, like, I don't know. I guess we can surmise that the Rudmans come with a, a level of notoriety. Um. I've said before that, you know, those issues need to be fleshed out by people who have access to the facts. And I'm not going to speculate about those things. But we, I think when you ask questions and you don't get answers, then it raises the, the suspicions or just raises the concerns. Um, it's quite easy to explain if someone says, you know, to if they're approaching you, well, what other investments do you have? Uh, never mind that they might actually be conflicts of interest, possibly, that it's quite reasonable to expect them to disclose that. I don't think that would be unreasonable, or even if it was a private company. So I, I find it very strange that there's all this subterfuge and the secrecy, and using things like this is a uh, private company and its access to funding is proprietary. I'm not never, I think that's a strange word to use, proprietary as opposed to confidential. But um, I just find it a bit strange. I'll be honest.
1: So, what happened today at the extraordinary general meeting?
7: Well, um, I think as all meetings go, it was a kind of cordial affair, and the chairman controls the process. So, he it was an electronic meeting, so that always makes it a bit more difficult. But I, I won't in any way suggest that Tonga did anything untoward. There was a they followed the due process. They introduced all the resolutions. They gave quite a long introduction about why they're doing this. And then there was a discussion. And I think the discussion from shareholders, various shareholders, centered around three or four key areas. The one was the question around Deloitte. Why did they keep Deloitte on for so long? Remember, this is three years ago that this emerged, but it says it's at least 18 months since, nearly two years since the restated accounts were kind of issued. So, you know, they kept Deloitte on and they're saying now they couldn't sue Deloitte because there would be a conflict of interest. And I kind of go, well, it doesn't really make sense. If they've done wrong, then you should have dispensed with them. And the answer was no. Well, there was no one who would do the audit. And, and I find that very strange because Steinhoff managed to replace their auditors and they were in a much more complex situations. So I don't buy that. Uh, then it was around Magister. Um, the, the issues around the, the prospects of this company you know we pay we raise two billion or three billion of capital we dilute shareholders by 90 percent but is there sufficient cash flow in the business after you pay all this money to the creditors to actually run the business and to fix the problems because we know there'd be some really serious operational problems because of lack of maintenance and and expenditure in the mills so, you know, are we just going to end up back in another year's time saying, well, we need more money and more dilution? And, you know, I just, those are the main main issues, I think.
1: Gavin Hudson was invited to participate uh, on this program in a discussion with you. And indeed, as a separate interview, if he didn't want to do that, he's declined both offers saying he's too busy. Um, it does seem a little strange given the parlous state of the business. Just to go back a little, though, it used to be the biggest organization or the biggest enterprise in KwaZulu-Natal, worth uh, tens of billions of rands at one point. Is it likely to survive this latest shake-up?
7: Look, I I sincerely hope so. I really do. And, And I have to say that, or just emphasize that, you know, this whilst we might have been seen by the board or some of the execs as troublemakers or uh, interfering, um, it really is because um, of our concern for the company and all the stakeholders. Many, t- 20,000 farmers who supply Tongos mills and um, about 400,000 people that are dependent in one way or another on working for the farmers, working for the company, the mills, etc. So it's a, it's a very important employer in a region, the case in North Coast, it doesn't have a lot of alternatives. Um, you know, from, to call it um, Belito to Mpengeni, there's not a lot of other economic activity. And so it's really critical this company survives, never mind the other operations they have in Zimbabwe and, and Mozambique. But I fear that the operational results that came out recently, um, as much as they're saying now they're going to fix it all, um, I'm always concerned or I'm concerned about um, companies that say we're going to fix things and so forth. Well, why did they get here? You know, We understand the problems that happened three years ago, but the problems that happened in the last nine months were about just simple operational issues. So is this company going to survive? I don't know. I desperately hope that it will. I already do.
1: If I'm reading you correctly, you have a double concern. The one is the, the managers who promised to pull Tonga out right are not achieving that and may not achieve that as well. They might be the wrong people in the job. And secondly, the concern of the new party that will be coming in to bail out the company, but by taking a massive slug of equity as a result of that, you're not so sure whether they're the right party. Am I reading you correctly?
7: Look, I think that's correct. Um, I, I, it would be wrong for me to say that the Magistral or the Rudlands are the wrong party. It's just that we really haven't had a chance. Uh, I mean, today we had a, a statement that was put out yesterday to an article that was published on um, Daily Maverick and by a team from Ama, Ama Bungani. And that was the first time that uh, Hamish Ruddin put out a statement. And, again, it's kind of strange um, for a transaction of this magnitude to have no profile, to have no engagement or no uh, presence Um I think there's some anxiety about what their intentions are, and, and I think they could have done a lot more to have allayed those anxieties or fears and uh, reassured people rather than just using very vanilla PR statements.
1: So Magista or the people behind it are are not uh, of the highest caliber, it appears, or certainly in the public perception. But were there other potential bidders for this company? Is it not so far gone that it's Hobson's choice.
7: Uh, it could that could be the case. I, I, I don't. I do believe that there were other options. But uh, you know, I guess one Always has to be very careful as well. That on the grandstand, you see things with perfect vision. Um, as we know, for anyone who follows rugby, the the fans are always uh, more informed, especially afterwards. So I guess, you know, one, I have to be careful. Maybe, you know, this is so broken and it's in such a poor state, which kind of then question, I come back and circle back, well, why was Magister so keen? Uh, what do they see in it? And we haven't had a chance to engage with them or ask them. So it's just very unusual. I can't remember a time in, in South Africa where a, comp- a listed company, especially one of this relative magnitude and importance, of socioeconomic importance, has been... Taken over by a company where there's just no knowledge, no real knowledge, or no engagement, or no—I um, think it's the norm that you know when we see these takeovers, the choir roar. Will spend a bit of time trying to woo shareholders and stakeholders and other people. I think that's quite reasonable to have a, a courtship before you uh, you get you get married, so to speak.
1: And David, uh, just to close off with. What is possible that the company could get back from Deloitte, from the auditors uh, who clearly were asleep at the wheel at best and complicit at worst, and the former executives who are being accused of fraud? How much money might Magister, which will be the new controlling shareholder if all of this goes through, uh, end up getting back from those two parties?
7: Um, well we tried this afternoon or so this morning at the meeting to get some indication from um, the directors and one of the non-executives and you know it was interesting that they sort of shifted their toe to saying well we are going after deloitte now that we've wrapped up the audits and we're now going we're gonna uh, we've got a team legal team ready to to pounce, kind of thing um so there was a strong indication that they are going after them but then they were kind of a bit coy about how much, and I guess it is difficult, but you've got to start somewhere. Um, so we know that Deloitte got paid somewhere in the region of 300 million rand for the audit fees over an eight-year period that this fraud was happening, and not, that doesn't mean that you, your damages are limited to what you earned, because your damages are also a function of the harm you caused. So I, I agree with with Linda DeBeer on the board, who said you know, Deloitte can't accountable for the whole of the loss the whole of the 12 billion rand of capital destruction but I think they're certainly accountable for a portion of it and so I uh, if we look at Steinhoff Deloitte's offered very quickly a 1.3 million um, settlement which Steinhoff took uh, 1.3 billion sorry and I would consider that in this case uh, a settlement of that magnitude would not be unreasonable given the, the the fraud itself was very simple fraud. I still can't even begin to understand how it went on for so long without being raised.
1: And the former directors, do they have any significant or material amount of money that can be clawed back by the company?
7: Well, we know that from the share register that um, uh, the two senior people, uh, Peter Stoudy and Murray Munro, they still hold all the shares that they held at the time that they were asked ousted. And in Peter's case, about 400 and something thousand shares and, and uh, Murray about half that. So, And they had been converting most of their long-term incentives into shares So, those shares were worth about 75 million at the peak, and they've fallen now to 2 million or so. And I doubt they'll have following their rights. So, you can see probably those shares were a lot less. So, they say they've got access to their pensions. Um, I don't know how that works, to be honest, securing a pension. But I doubt they have 10% of the claim, the 450 million that they're asking for, because you can go back 10 years and see what they earned and, and how they converted most of that to shares. So I would be very surprised. And that's why one of the points we raised was you seem very keen to throw this $450 million out for the claim against the directors when a, a reasonable assessment would show that, well, they don't really have that kind of money. Whereas Deloitte is a big company, international company with big insurance policies. So why not be as bold and your claims against the
2: vote welcome to it i'm michael apple joining me today is a man i've wanted to interview for a very long time political activist in his younger years career public servant former cabinet spokesperson and gcis chief executive perhaps most importantly whistleblower Tembo maseko thanks for giving us some of your time today Uh, I want to get into volume one of the report that makes a distinction between facilitators, followers, enablers of state capture. You are none of these. You're singled out as a resistor. Uh, You were a resistor during apartheid and once again in a democratic era. How does that term sit with you, resistor?
8: (laughs) Uh, Let me tell you, Michael. It took me a while to even accept the term um, whistleblower. But I think that uh, I don't have issues with the the term because I did defy President Zuma and the Guptas and I did resist state capture. And as a consequence, I ended up uh, in the wilderness because uh, I was removed from my posts in government.
2: Yeah, we're going to get into that in a second. I want to take you to to former President Jacob Zuma's testimony at the commission. Um, I suspect you were listening much like the rest of the country. He said openly that, He was behind the creation of the New Age newspaper. Now, in hindsight, and I say in hindsight because it wasn't actually public knowledge that Mr. Zuma was behind the creation of TNA initially, with hindsight, should it have been a red flag that you had a head of state who was actively involved in the creation of a media enterprise? Should that have been a red flag?
8: I think that it was well known through the grapevine in government that in fact... um President Zuma was assisting the Gupta family with their business enterprises. And in fact, there's a book written by one of the TNA employees who subsequently left the country who confirmed that several meetings were, had, were held with the President Zuma before the newspaper was launched. So although the public had not known that before, when that book was published and when President Zuma went to the Zondo Commission, he basically confirmed what was already known in the grapevine among people who were in Government and in the in the ANC
2: circles. Yeah, that was Rajesh Sundaram. I remember his testimony. Now, the New Age newspaper, its yeah. its stance or its yeah. selling point was that it was going to be pro South African, and this was born out of a media space where the ANC and government said that that media was too negative towards. Uh, the the governing party and the government. Were you in support of such a notion? Do you think that that media has been too critical of the government and the ANC at part uh, in history in South Africa?
8: Um, Michael, there had been discussions within the ruling party, the ANC, for many years about the need to establish an an, an ANC newspaper um, or a government newspaper. I was never in support of that because I was of the view that, in fact, government's work must speak for itself, and you don't need a propaganda machinery, because that's essentially that—that's what it would have been. So I was not sub- supportive of that new, new initiative. But what became very clear is that when the Guptas came to the picture, they then stole a discussion document that was within ANC circles and ended up creating the New Age newspaper with the view to becoming... A propaganda machinery initially, we thought, but it was very clear that, in fact, the real idea behind the establishment of the New Age newspaper was a a money-making scheme for the Gupta family. There was no intention at all to communicate any messages about what government was doing. It was essentially a platform used to swindle resources from state-owned enterprises and government in in general. So it, it, it was a scam.
2: Well let's speak about the money. Uh, near the end of 2010 you receive a phone call from Ajay Gupta where he wants something from you. In your own words what was the demand?
8: But essentially what he was saying was that he wanted me to collect all the advertising budgets from the various government departments, consolidate them into GCRS, and then transfer that whole budget to his New Age newspaper. Interestingly Your listeners and viewers would be interested to know that, in fact, as I was going to the meeting with Ajay Gupta, that's when I got a call from the former President Zuma, basically saying, there are these Gupta brothers who need my assistance, and I should go and and assist them. So that call happened as I was driving driving to the meeting with Ajay Gupta. So at the meeting with Gupta, Ajay Gupta, I made it very clear that I was not going to be part of such a scheme because... Government has processes and procedures that it follows, and there is no way I would be willing to actually transfer a whole budget of government to a single media house. So he, he made it very clear to me that, in fact, that's what he wanted me to do. And if there was no cooperation I was getting from the various ministers and departments, I should come and report to him, and he will summon all of those ministers to the sex World world should be that is his house, and he would give them instructions and that's when I knew that I took exception to this and that's when I knew that I was not going to be part of the of his criminal enterprise and I got extremely worried that in fact I had received a call from Zuma to say I must go and assist them.
2: I assume you'd never ever received a call of this kind from from the head of state before to say go help these particular people.
8: Interestingly, I mean I'd, I'd, as CEO of GCIS, I had very close working relationships with the heads, heads of state as a must. Uh, I had regular meetings with President Zuma. I mean President Mbeki, I had regular meetings with um, President Mutlante when he was in that position. And when Zuma was appointed, I tried to have meetings with him and all my requests for meetings were, were declined. so I'd never had a one-on-one meeting with him. In fact, the call, that he made to me, Zuma made to me to meet the Gupta brothers, was the first and only call I received from him to say, I must help the Gupta brothers. And in all my meetings my meetings and conversations with Mbeki and Mutlante, at no stage did they call me to say, go and help these business people with whatever they wanted from you. So it was the first call.
2: So AJ Gupta, in that meeting you had, he spoke very condescendingly about ministers who wouldn't cooperate, did you think that this was all a sort of a show of force? Did you actually think at the time that they had that sort of power they were claiming to have?
8: It became very clear to me that, in fact, um, Ajay Gupta wanted to demonstrate to me that he, he had power over government ministers. And I saw that by the fact that I get a call on my way to meeting him from the head of state, Zuma, Zuma himself. And secondly, at the meeting, and as I give details of this in my book, he told me that he has regular meetings with Zuma at his house. He told me that a number of ministers are, are required to come and have meetings with him at the and World, uh, Shabin, as it was known. So it was clearly an attempt to demonstrate to me that he had power over government. And I took a strong exception to, to, to that. And I, I was very clear in my head that I was not going to be part of that kind of conduct by somebody who was not part of government.
2: Now, you left that meeting and you were very upset, and you you actually communicated with uh, the late former minister, Collins Chabane as well as the deputy president, Moklante, at the time, I think it was President Moklante or Deputy President Moklante who who said to you that the, the entire ANC National Executive Committee was actually concerned about the levels of influence that the Gupta family had over Mr. Zuma. And this was late 2010, 2011. This is two years before the Guptas would even land at Waterkloof Air Force Base. So the ANC itself at that point in 2010, late 2010, was already uncomfortable with the level of influence, is that correct?
8: Without any shade of a doubt. I mean, Minister, the late Minister Chavani, when I informed him about this meeting I had with Ajay Gupta, he made it very clear that he was extremely worried about the, the situation. Um, he had been contacted by quite a number of government officials and ministers about this. Deputy President McClante also confirmed this. And in my subsequent meetings with, the, when the NC decided that they wanted to conduct an investigation, Uh, Gwede Mantasha was secretary general at that stage, also did say that the ANC was aware of the problem and they were trying to find a way of dealing with it. But it was very clear that the ANC was dealing with what I term the problem of incumbency, of not being able to raise questions and challenge its president on matters that was of great concern to many South Africans and also to many ministers in government.
2: In fact, the integrity commission of the ANC recommended that Zuma step down in 2013 after the Waterkloof uh, debacle. Let's say, and the NEC and Mr. Zuma obviously ignored those calls, and we ended up having Mr. Zuma as president for another five years. You you would end up speaking to Essopahad Joel Nchitenzi, and this is quote from the the report quote, the more I knew nothing was going to happen, close quote. In other words, these guys were untouchable. That became clear to you?
8: That became very clear. And, and, and um, I mean, I spoke to as many people who could listen to me about the situation, and many, many government officials were also raising serious concerns about the kind of approaches that they were getting from, from the, 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 the Gupta family. But it was very clear that... Uh, Mr. Zuma had uh, significant support in the National Executive Committee and people were prepared to whisper in the corridors, but were not strong enough to actually stand up and and challenge what was uh, taking place. And that's confirmed by the fact that when the NEC realized that they could not ignore the issue, they decided to appoint its secretary general, their secretary general, Kwele to investigate I was the only person who was willing to go in and, and, and give a report, a, 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 an affidavit to Mantashe, who had told me that, in fact, many people had promised him that they would come and give evidence. But it turned out that no one was willing to actually come and give evidence of what they had been subjected to by the Gupta family. So it is very clear in my mind that a lot of ANC leaders were aware of what was taking place. They just did not have the the, the the wherewithal to actually deal with the matter directly.
2: So at the end of January twenty ten, um, I mean you are you are eventually removed in, in early February, uh, twenty eleven. When when you were to be redeployed, at the instruction eleven. of of President Zuma, uh, but it was Mr. Chabane said you quote unquote wouldn't be thrown into the street. This must have been a, a real low point in your career.
8: It was. I mean, the, the the way the events unfolded was 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 quite unfortunate and very disturbing for me. And I couldn't believe that the party, my party, that I'd been uh, part of for, for for decades at that point, w- would actually treat one of its own in that manner. Firstly, I mean, Zuma instructed Chabane to remove re- remove me from GCIS. And then when I'm sitting in the cabinet meeting, the story is leaked to the media to announce that, in fact, i had been fired from GCIS. So I learned about it in the newspaper, and it was clear that Zuma's plan was that I would actually be out of government. It was Shabani's um, move or decision to say, you're not going to be thrown into the streets. I'll find a way of getting you appointed into another department. And Zuma himself was not aware that, in fact, there'd been such a move. And that's how I ended up in the Department of Public Service and Administration, which was basically Chabani's attempt to try and make sure that I still remain within employment. But it was very clear that Shabani himself knew that the way this whole move was done was also amounting to unfair labor pra- practice. And he knew that I would have legal recourse because there's no way that a senior government official could be fired in the manner that Zuma wanted me to be fired.
2: Yeah, it, it would have to, according to the prescripts of the Lord, it has to be with your knowledge, it has to be in the public interest. There are whole bunch of boxes that need to be ticked. None of them were ticked. That cabinet statement that came out that bore your name, you had no knowledge of it, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that went wrong there. I want to pick up on what the DCJ had to say about the fact that uh, the former president conveniently lays the blame. At your friend's door, the former Minister Chabane, saying that it was in fact him who was name-dropping. And this is something that's been convenient for somebody like former Ambassador Bruce Kolwane, who also took the, the hit and said, I was name-dropping when I said that the President wanted the Guptas to land at the Air Force Base. This notion of name-dropping, I assume you don't buy it.
8: I don't buy it. I mean, I, I, I was really disappointed again when I was watching President Zuma. Giving testimony at the Zondo Commission, basically telling a blue lie to say President or Minister Chabane is the one who requested my removal from GCIS because there was the relationship had broken down. This was a blue lie, and we provided evidence to the Zondo Commission that in fact he had given me the 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 highest rating of good performance in my job as CEO of GCIS. We had played golf many times with the minister, so. For, me, for President Zuma to, in a public platform, tell a lie to that extent, was something that further demonstrated to me that, in fact, he did lack integrity as a as head of state.
2: When you did ultimately leave the public service, and I'd like you to tell me when that was, what, what waited in store for you carrying the name Tembo Maseko and all that came with that name? How were you treated by your comrades?
8: I decided to leave uh, public service after a few months working as DG of public service in administration, and that was largely because I did feel a bit unwelcome in that department, not necessarily by staff, but by by the minister, uh, Minister Baloy there, because I was essentially imposed on him, and the staff in the department were not even told I was coming. So I decided this was not going to work for me, and I left public service. But when I left, it was very clear that uh, many people were actually unhappy about the fact that I had uh, spoken out and exposed the fact that um, I had refused to cooperate um, with the Gupta's on instruction of the then former President Zuma, and I was actually isolated to some extent. Um, Many public servants did not necessarily want to dissociate themselves from me, but they just did not know how to deal with me, and they didn't want to be seen to be associated with somebody who was considered um, a snitch at the time and it led to a period of isolation uh, from my old comrades from former government officials but the most difficult part was just not being able to make a living because i couldn't get a job in the public sector the private sector also did not want to be seen to be associating with somebody who was seen to be an enemy of the state More difficult was the fact that I could not even raise funding to start um, businesses because um, when I went to banks and public finance institutions, I was considered uh, a politically exposed person. So it was just impossible to to, to make a living. So you end up having to borrow from your future by, you know, Mm. dipping into your life policies, your life insurances, just to make ends meet. So those years became... Extremely difficult, and that's what many whistleblowers are going through as you speak. Life it became very difficult for me.
2: Now, you've written a book that you've reper- referred to earlier, For My Country, and I must tell you a side story. I went to uh, the exclusive books to try and buy a copy, and they said there is one on the system. I went, and then they said they cannot find it. It must have been stolen. There's something ironic about that.
8: Well, yeah, the, the response from the public to my book was 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 overwhelming. Um, I've had to get complimentary copies for people who just wanted to read the book but did not have money to buy it. So wherever I went, uh, I kept copies to just give it to people who were looking to read the book. So I must say I am grateful. The response from the public was very positive. Um, it ended up being one of the bestsellers uh, nationally in the non-fiction section. So I'm grateful that the book did become uh, something of interest to many, many people.
2: I see you traveled around the country giving signed copies to certain former leaders. Did your book tour ever take you to a certain overpriced uh, homestead with a fire pool?
8: Um, and the only president, presidents, former presidents, I was able to give the books to were uh, President Mbeki and Mutlante. But unfortunately, the trip to Mkanja is not possible. Was not possible, and I don't think it will ever be possible because I don't think I will ever be welcomed in that part of the world.
2: Well, that leads to my next question: Have you ever had any interaction with Mr. Zuma once you were removed from the GCIS? You you said you've received one phone call saying, "Please help my help the the Gupta brothers out," after you were fired. Have you and over the years have you ever had any interaction with Mr Zuma?
8: I think one of my my sense is that uh, Mr Zuma when he was president he was actually quite paranoid. Um so he distrusted most of the public servants who worked in the Mbeki administration because in his head those of us who worked in government during Mbeki's time were part of the Mbeki factions. And when I eventually left government there was never any communication whatsoever from him or the people around him. So the last time I actually had direct contact with or seen him was when I attended the ANC conference in um, 2017. And he was in the room. He was a few steps away from him. I can tell whether he saw me or not. But ever since I left government, there has never been any contact between me and his office.
2: Mr. Maseko, are you still a card-carrying member of the ANC?
8: At this stage, uh, Michael, I'm not a card carrying member of any political party. I just consider myself as just a citizen who wants to do good for for my country. And I'll continue serving the nation uh, without carrying the card of any political party.
2: In your mind, even though you're not a member of the ANC anymore, let's say, do you make a distinction between the ANC of President Zuma and his successor, President Ramaphosa?
8: Look, I think that the ANC is going through probably one of its most challenging times as a political party. I think that the factionalism has actually broken the party. I believe that there are some people who believe it can be saved. But from where I'm sitting The decline of the party has not stopped since the exit of uh, uh, President Zuma. And I think more work, they'll have to do more work to rebuild the party. Factionalism has actually affected the core of the party. And at this stage, I'm sitting, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not too optimistic about the problems it faces being resolved in the near future.
2: Knowing the personal cost of whistleblowing... When someone like the national chair, Gweta Mantashe, says that the report should only be used to rebuild and unify the party and not single out the guilty, what's your take on a comment like that?
8: Any wrongdoing that is identified in the final report of the Zondo Commission must lead to consequences to people, be they in leadership of the ANC or government, and to suggest that what the report says must not be used to Um, must be used to unite the party, it basically means that um, no action must be taken against those who broke the law, those who are implicated in corruption, and I don't buy that. I think that anybody who has been implicated in corruption must face consequences, be they in the party or in government. So the Zondo Commission report should not and cannot be a document to unite the wrongdoers and those who are trying to fix the problem.
2: The commission says, quote, South Africa requires an anti-corruption body free from political oversight and able to combat corruption with fresh and concentrated energy, close quote. It kind of reminds me of the scorpions. Have we gone full circle?
8: I think we've definitely gone full circle. Um, The the anti-corruption body needs to be put in place, but you also need to make sure that, you know, resources are put into the National Prosecuting Authority because at the end of the day, the anti-corruption body will point fingers and say person A and B are involved in corruption, but at the end of the day, those people need to be prosecuted. It's only the NPA that can make sure that charge sheets are prepared, proper charge sheets are prepared, and those people are prosecuted uh, in a court of law because we can talk about investigating corruption, but unless... People are held accountable and prosecuted. Very little will indeed change.
2: We've had whistleblowers murdered in this country: Babita Dioka and just the the latest. There's recommendations to start an age an agency from the commission, but that could take years. One that supports uh, whistleblowers financially, mentally, uh, and it still requires implementation, which could take years. It, it's It's too late for people like yourself, but are you in support of the recommendation going forward?
8: I think that um, the the commission is giving the country at least a model that can be put in place to actually deal with all of these challenges of state capture and corruption. But in the short term, I would say the, the president owes this country one big present, and that present is making resources available to the NPA and making sure that, in fact, it can take all the evidence from the Zondo Commission and convert that evidence into charge sheets and take those charge sheets to a court of law so that people can be prosecuted. I am extremely worried about the leadership, the police services as we speak, because a lot of these cases may require investigation. And at this stage, I'm worried about the law enforcement agency's capacity to investigate all of these cases to make sure that in fact the zondo commission doesn't end up end up being just another commission report that we file we file in our cabinets and forget about
2: i was sorry to read about a recently terrifying experience that uh, that you had at your home and you were woken at 3:30 in the morning with uh, criminals inside or on your roof uh, you ended up firing warning shots to scare them off General crime or no such thing as coincidence?
8: I'm, I'm at this stage and I'm concerned about the security of whistleblowers in general. In my case, it could be a, a normal crime event, but it still remains very suspicious in my view. The timing of it happening so soon after the, the release of the Zonda Commission report, the fact that there was no attempted break-in in any of the rooms that could have been broken into if criminals are interested in stealing anything. The fact that there was a focus on my bedroom in particular is suspect. The fact that the intruders avoided CCTV cameras and made their way to the roof of my house does make it suspicious. But my anticipation is that as we move closer to the final report being released and the possibility of court cases being instituted against all those who are implicated in the Zondo Commission report, I worry about the security of whistleblowers who may be expected to give evidence in a court of law. And I hope government is doing all it can to make sure that, in fact, some security is provided to all whistleblowers, because these criminals, these facilitators and participants in state capture must be worried wherever they are, and they are going to try and do all they can to intimidate whistleblowers from giving evidence in a court of law. So this is something that I, I expect more and more whistleblowers may experience these kinds of break-ins um, and government should be taking note of this as a matter of urgency.
2: I'd like to finish off by reading a an extract from page 497. The finding that President Zuma gave Minister Chabane an instruction to fire Mr. Maseko or move him out of the GCIS, is of great significance in understanding Mr. Zuma's role in state capture and advancing the interests of the Guptas and his family at the expense of the interests of the people of South Africa. President Zuma was prepared to throw his own comrade in the ANC, Mr. Maseko, a well-performing civil servant, into the street just because he had refused to be party to a corrupt arrangement sought by the Guptas. Mr. Maseko, thank you.
8: Thank you, sir.
1: Well, thanks for being with us today. And we look forward to being back in your company tomorrow. Same time, same place uh, from the Biz News team. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.